This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. Hello again, Eric Anderson, Editor-in-Chief of Awards Watch. We've missed you for the last couple of weeks. I know, and so much has happened since then. It's it's like one month or even two months go by, and it's about six months worth of content. It is, and I have a whole bunch of things I want to talk about to you about to get your thoughts on this week. Industry news, some major controversies, awards news, and of course, Timothée Chalamet. We're going <laughs> to get into it all. I'm going to start because first I want to quote someone. Um, I want to quote the great Eric Anderson, who <laughs> recently took to the institution of discourse called Twitter to write, I don't know who's worse. The you have to see it in the theater people or the ones shaming the ones who do go. So <laughs> this is the discourse now, right? You know, it was it was a, a subtweet to be sure, because there are just there's just this weird conversation happening. Uh, and and it's all within peer groups, which is kind of unfortunate. And and that is the you know, the, the, the folks that are, you know, you have to see doing a theater, anything else is just, just not, you know, worth it. And then you have the, the other side, which is, well, you know, there are plenty of people that can't go to a theater and, and which are both great arguments to have, but the, the nature of the argument and the language is more of shaming the other side and other person rather than explaining and talking about reasons for and reasons against. So it's it's no different really than political discourse too, where the the only the only avenue of discussion uh, is is cut off right at the beginning because you're not opening it up for discussion. You're just saying you're wrong. It's like this and anything that you say just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So that was my kind of comment to be just like you're, you're both doing the exact same thing. You're not engaging in a conversation or a discourse. You're just, you're just throwing up this, this border that is uncrossable uh, for you. So you're not, you're not trying to, you're not trying to look at anything. You're just trying to kind of be a jerk. Right. And, and one of the things that to discuss here also is the box office, because in fact, um, this week's American box office with Dune, for example, e even though it was day and date on HBO Max as well, it went pretty well, right? Yeah, and that's kind of what inspired this new round of this conversation, because we've had now a handful of blockbusters in the United States that have started to do pretty well, and and. I, again, people just kind of, they, they start to bristle and they start to get, I don't know, like personally weirded out or offended. I, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes. I mean, I did engage in some of that conversation. Some of it was healthy and then some of it was really not because it was just about, you know, you're coming from a point of privilege and you're, you're looking at things through your own lens, but 
if you're if your point when you come back is looking at something purely from your own lens, it's kind of funny to say that and and to you know project that onto somebody else. But yeah, I mean, the box office in the United States is starting to come back. We certainly have to reevaluate what we can define as a, as a success in this era. Um, but you know, if something costs two hundred million dollars. And you know it costs millions and millions and millions more on top of that to market into everything that it takes to to run a campaign for a film. You know, a forty million dollar opening, I don't think is that great. It's kind of strange how it was painted as a really big success. Um, it doesn't feel like a big success for Dune. Speaking mm-hmm, specifically mm-hmm. for Dune because we've had no time to die. We've had other films that have hit higher, higher numbers than that. And of, of course, you know, we have to also look at, at international box office when you're talking about uh, any of these type of movies, because all, all of that, that budget and, and marketing uh, it's not just limited to the United States totals, but we, we kind of, you know, the U S is, very U.S. centric, oh, really? <laughs> shock, shockingly so, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It only matters what we think. So when we look at something like box office, the focus is almost always on domestic, and you know we have to look at at the the rest too, and how much that counters uh, any arguments that we make. Looking at the speciality box office, it was wonderful news, I understand, and that the French Dispatch um, opened in only 52 theaters and made $1.3 million. Um, and just imagine how the expansion to 600 theaters will be. So people do want to go back to the theater, even for the smaller pictures. It, it could be. It'll be really interesting to see because we, we saw September and most of October just be miserable for the art house crowd and for those those types of films french dispatch and and lamb from a24 are bucking the the trend of that but then you know something like the eyes of tammy faye or mass has not been able to to do what i think they could probably do in a quote unquote normal and non-pandemic year so i think i think it's going to remain extremely difficult for those types of films for art house theaters in general, which have been able to survive pretty well over the last few years, even as we uh, rely on streaming so much and and theaters rely on tentpole franchises so much, they've still been able to do well, but in this industry, there there isn't gonna be a group that's hit more hard by closures and by the pandemic than, than an art house theater. But in all in all, it's been a good, positive weekend. And how much mm-hmm. can we attribute to Timmy, who's in both <laughs> of these movies? <laughs> you know, it's... it's Timothy, or should I continue saying Timothy? As you can apparently. say whatever you Timothy, want. Yeah. Timothy yeah. Chalamet is in both of these movies that we just mentioned. He is. It's a good weekend to be Timmy uh, <laughs> on top of his, you know, Wonka stuff and all of that. So he's he's having a good time and a good period. And he's not exactly um, a a box office king by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, there's nothing that's led to him being one. So 
just just being the the face of of these two movies even though obviously french dispatch is a very large ensemble um has kind of given him this status either real or artificial i'm not really sure yet it's going to take other things to to kind of establish if he has any real box office prowess or not but it's kind of um, nice. Both Timothy yeah. and our Oscar Isaac playing his papa and Dune, who was in everything else as well. And if we could get Jake Gyllenhaal in as like an uncle or something in there, we would have a wonderful little trifecta for the two of us. <laughs> I, that would be great. I'm, I'm, I approve. <laughs> uh, and of course, it wasn't surprising, but uh, Dune 2 news just came out. Any thoughts? You weren't surprised, right? Yeah, no, I don't think anybody was surprised. Everybody was just kind of waiting for Legendary to say yes. Uh, and, and I think it was going to happen anyway. But it, it would have had to be a pretty disastrous opening to say no. But I don't know. I think they might have anyway. Because they're they're looking at, you know, this is going to be 2023 for the second part. That's that's two full years from now. So they they're certainly looking at and hoping that we are in a world that is not what the last two years have been and that the next two years is going to be a return to normalcy as much as that word means anything now. Tell me what you think the chances for Dune are in well, terms I, of the race. I, yeah, I, I, I don't see a situation in which Dune doesn't really just dominate the technical categories. It's even though we have some, you know, some big films, some blockbuster stuff like Eternals and, and other things that are kind of back in the Oscar race. I don't think anything can really touch Dune in, in those categories, but you know, we're also in the era of the preferential ballot at the Oscars. So something like Dune is not a, a best picture winner anymore. Not that kind of thing. And it's, you know, sci-fi, which the Academy has its own uh, feelings about so that opens the door for Belfast and honestly I mean the moment that Belfast was announced for Telluride that was it for me it's the best picture front that's yeah, it your front runner yeah absolutely it's not gonna I, I don't see it's, it changing you do see Dune being nominated for best picture of course um is yes. in the technical categories is it no time to die a big competitor or I think it's less of a competitor um i don't i don't imagine it's going to play better than skyfall um you know which had judy dench and javier bardem getting actual you know acting awards nominations and and stuff leading up to the oscars they didn't get in but there was a there was an appreciation and a respect for it at the oscars that no bond film had had before uh, so I'm I'm looking at it to do well in song and sound, um, but maybe not really much else. The Bond franchise in many ways, particularly in Oscar terms, is much more of a European franchise. They quite seldom make a dent at the Oscars, right? And this year, the technical below the line awards, the conversation seems to be all Dune. Yeah, it's Dune. Dune is just going to take up all the oxygen in, in, in those conversations. And I mean, you know, rightfully so it is an impeccable, uh, it's amazing. 
film and 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 blockbuster so there's no reason why it shouldn't i mean we you know we have some we have like the matrix uh uh resurrection coming which looks amazing visually just looks insane um that could make that could have an impact the the new spider-man could have uh an impact we're not sure yet mm -hmm. but i i have a hard time seeing something topple dune in in those technical categories and so we could see like what happened with gravity you know or uh mad max and the and the revenant which completely just took all of the technical wins and you know left the door open for you know, screenplay picture stuff like that and you have belfast as number one now as your um best picture contender we didn't get a chance to talk about that last time so this is my name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Kenneth Branagh's, his own story, really, his childhood story, it has made an absolute splash. Um, I think it's a lovely film. Uh, I've seen it twice. I really, really enjoy it. Um, it's, you know, not my favorite film of the year, but I think it's, I think it's really lovely. And like I said, the Telluride announcement, as soon as it, it we knew that it was going to play there, that was, that was it for me because I, I will stick with the, the, the Telluride showing rule, which I'll put in quotes a little bit because Green Book sidestepped that. Uh, but even in doing so, Green Book won the TIFF People's Choice, Belfast won the TIFF People's Choice. So with both of those, it's, it's pretty unstoppable to me. The rest of the ones you have on your list right now are the ones we talked about. Spencer, well, in order, Belfast, The Power of the Dog, Dune, King Richard, Nightmare Alley, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Licorice Pizza, West Side Story, Spencer, and wonderfully, our, one of our favorites, Flea is number 10, which is actually the Danish documentary, um, which is Denmark's international submission for the Oscar as well. And you also have it in Best Picture. Mm-hmm. I'm... I'm I'm really going to bat for for that movie. I think it will make Oscar history this season, and Yay. it it only it only needs a couple of of things in order to do that. If it if it hits, you know, animated feature and documentary, it will make history. If it makes you know international feature and uh, animated, it'll make history. But I think it's going to hit at least three of the four. I'm pushing for four. I'm hoping that. Which is the four? Sorry, international. So international doc, animated and best picture. Yeah. And we've never had a documentary nominated for best picture before. Uh, so that's that's why it's kind of sitting there at 10. And we do have a solid 10 this year again, uh, which is good. We're not going to have this weird, is it going to be seven, seven or eight or nine or what is it? Uh, I'm glad that we're back to 10. So I have, I have high hopes for it, but I'm also, uh, I'm also cautious, which is why it kind of sits there at 10. 
it's we're at the very end of October here and I'm I'm just getting my October predictions out. So best picture will be out the Friday the 29th. Uh, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure it'll still be on there. Well, that would be amazing and so worthy of that. I'm really mm-hmm. So the next step we have, I guess festival season is pretty much winding down. Um, We're coming into the precursors, right? Um, What is going on with the Golden Globes who were out and now they've dragged us back in? (laughs) You know, I don't I don't think anybody should be surprised by this. It would be strange. You know, that anybody would be surprised that they were not going to do this. They were always going to do this. They have never in 78 years not held a ceremony or and at least an awards announcement there yeah, was but in no 78 years they haven't had this the level of controversy that they sure had. but but from all of their responses to to nbc to la times to um the changes that they've made they still clearly have not like really learned or understood the impact and the seriousness of it because they're still pretty defensive about it. And they're still basically, Hey, we've done this. We're good now. Uh, So in, in, in their minds, they've done way more than what people want them to do. And that's all, that's all it was ever going to take. Um, They were, I'd never believed for a moment that we were not going to get uh, the Golden Globe awards in whatever version that they might be. Yeah, because NBC won't be doing it, right? So they'll do what, a press conference or something on their own? Or Tentatively, that is what it would be, like they did for 2008. Uh, I don't think NBC is off the table. Oh, you do? Um, I don't. Th- th- that could still happen. It's not likely, especially now that there's this fight between the Hollywood Foreign Press and the Critics Critics Choice Association, yeah, which the I Critics think Choice Awards stepped in just for the listeners. To... So the Golden Globes are in January, right? And then no one thought they were going to do it since NBC stepped. So the Critics Choice stepped in and took their date, <laughs> and now yeah, they almost, want it back. Are they doing almost it the almost as soon as NBC announced that they weren't going to do a telecast? Critics Choice said, "Uh, okay, we'll take January 9th. We'll do it," and. Then there was, you know, radio silence from the Hollywood Foreign Press. And then they just announced, by the way, we're keeping January 9th and we're still doing the Golden Globes then. And so there's just been this back and forth between the uh, Critics' the Choice president. of this group is Of just... both, really. I mean, yeah. of both. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, and that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. The, the Hollywood Foreign Press does not clearly does not feel that they had to make any changes they are only doing it for posterity and for uh for optics uh they they're keeping january 9th because they want to keep things the way that they were and the way that they are well can i so it's kind of fascinating yeah can i ask you one thing i mean in terms of like publicist and does anyone want a golden globe that is the big question because (laughs) <laughs> that's the big question. I think I mean, it's November pushing for this. I mean, November 15th, I believe is the deadline for networks and studios to submit their films and their TV shows, and they have to be submitted. So 
that's that's the thing, and everybody's kind of being really quiet about it. Yeah, is that because, public? Will we know who's submitted? Um, hmm. They don't usually post like an an eligibility list, mm-hmm. but we do usually find out, you know, like category placement and stuff like that. Uh, I'm calling so, you on November sixteenth. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna find out as much as I can, but that's that's part of it is that you know, we, we can bash and make fun of the Golden Globes for being, you know, just craven about this regardless of optics, but it's also studios and networks and publicists and all of that that still want it too. They, they want the Golden Globes to still exist and it will be a really interesting test to see if the changes that they've imp- implemented are enough to to say yes we're going to go ahead and submit all of our stuff like it was normal um otherwise yeah i mean if we have say netflix decides not to submit anything because it's not you know good enough they were one of the first to to pull out from the globes even though they've also been uh some of the biggest benefactors of the controversies of the golden globes so if we see Netflix product all across nomination morning, then we know that that people want all is forgiven. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and enough enough to be able to put you know Golden Globe winner or nominee on a poster or a trailer. But I just think it's it's strange because first of all, the controversy and all the sort of BS that's been going on there in combination with no show because what they were good at was the show, was the spectacle, the fun party, the much more fun party than a lot of the other award shows the precursors are. And with neither of those- are- I don't know. It's, it's, it'll, it's, it's going to be fun to talk about. I'll say that I'm, I'm glad that I'm not a part of it in that sense and that I get to just talk about it. It's, you know, it, it, it puts me in like a weird safe space, but at the same time, you know, I have to, I have to look at things from a perspective of what is my, my position and, and job in talking about this. Do I just simply report things or do I add color commentary that, that gives context? And I think, you know, most people that know me, I do like color commentary. Oh, so. we, I mean, if you're not doing the color commentary. <laughs> I do have opinions. <laughs> it's so right. weird. <laughs> yes. Then with, I'm not calling anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we want your color commentary. But other than that, the precursors are looking pretty much as usual, right? I mean, pre-COVID, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, they're, they're a little bit. Oscars. They're, they're mostly a little bit later than, than usual. We do have. AFI Fest left in November. That's kind of the last one. And we'll see some world premieres there of films that haven't gone anywhere else yet. Uh, and then obviously we still have a handful of films that are, aren't going to any festival. So we're just waiting for them to be seen to have any kind of uh, opinion on them. But yeah, otherwise we've got uh, Gotham and uh Critics Awards will start in earnest in December, kind of like normal. Mm-hmm. And but like Screen Actors Guild nominations aren't till January instead of December, like they normally are. 
Golden Globe nominations are in December like they normally are. They are. <laughs> They're all back. Because, <laughs> you know, everything's, you know, the Oscars are at the end of March, which is still a month later than they kind of have Wanted been. To. Uh, but certainly not the end of April like this season. So everything's everything's moved. Uh, almost everything's moved about a month later than than what we're used to seeing. So it's going to be another long season. Yeah, and mostly talk about in-person shows. Yes, which there are definitely going to be more of because they all take place in Los Angeles and Los Angeles has extremely strict uh, vaccination requirements. Um, I, I I think we'll still have probably some reduced or limited numbers, but I think... I think because of those requirements being in place, you know, it it affords normalcy. So I want to switch gears a bit to to talk about the very tragic incidents at Rust, um, the Alec Baldwin film, where the tragic shooting of the cinematographer Helena Hutchins and the the director who was also shot in the shoulder. I thought it was interesting is the wrong word, but but it was. The fact that this happened just a week or two after all this talk of the Yahtzee, the big possible strike from the below the line in Hollywood, the workers, and then this happened sort of like a, you know, symbolic, tragic gesture of what happens when you don't have enough money in your productions and you're not taking things seriously and not working with unions and things like that. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about how this will reverberate in the industry and where you think this is going, what you think is going to happen with this case. Well, I mean, the timing of it was just perfectly tragic um, because like you said, it did really highlight uh, the fight that's going on still going on even with you know some agreements in, in place with with IATSE and it's it's tough because when things like this happen we get information in bits and pieces and then it's either validated and corroborated or it's changes so it's it's tough being in such a instant news era because you know when it first came out we didn't really know anything we know more and more each day we know from the crew itself who are revealing in court documents the the working conditions of this film were really really poor um so i i think it i think it it just highlights it highlights the need for this union to have an extremely strong agreement. Um, It highlights that the film industry, unlike a lot of other regular jobs, has a requirement or an expectation, I should say, of extremely long hours, uh, very little support. And that's, you know, whether it's a, a blockbuster or an independent film, And that isn't to say that all are like that in any way whatsoever. But because things are so lax, oftentimes, it just allows for that type of abuse to happen pretty easily. Because this is an industry like, you know, modeling or really any type of other entertainment industry where 
you'll always have be under the threat of, well, if you don't want to do this, there's a hundred people right behind you that will take your place. And Which so you what do happened here, right? We, what we understand that, that the, it's exactly the, what yeah, happened. Yeah. They, they let all the union people go and, and quick as ever brought in a bunch of other people. Um, that's, that's exactly right. And, and it's the, it's been the nature of this industry for a very, very long time is just this threat of how bad do you want it? You know, how much will you compromise your integrity and safety, you know, to work on a film in any capacity at all? Uh, and this is, you know, this is what happened on Rust. It's what happened with Scott Rudin and Harvey Weinstein. It's it's all the same animal of of abuse and abuse of power, and how people feel very vulnerable and open to it simply because they want to work in the industry. Well, I, I hope that this will be at least in the, in the tragedy of it all, some sort of calling to people to take this seriously. And Absolutely. And the most vulnerable people are the ones that need the most protection, stunt people and, and everything else that are like quite literally putting their lives on the line for our entertainment. I don't understand why we have to have live ammunition on films at all. I mean, it just... It, to me, that's just one of the easiest things to just decide this is not, this is ridiculous. I mean, why even take that risk? It's, it seems extremely irresponsible to me. Um, if you want to have your, your actor take gun training, which, you know, I think if you're going to work on a film that has a lot of firearms, I think that's crucial and important. But that would be something you do completely offset yeah, and before. I mean, and not- before and, you know, with all safety requirements, I don't understand. Um, yeah, live rounds on a set. It doesn't make any logical sense. But and finally, I have to ask you about Chappelle. Chappelle. Yes. Oh, my God. You know, it's 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 very strange to watch somebody dig their heels in deeper and make it even worse when there are plenty of ways that it could have been, I don't know, a a great opportunity, a great chance for enlightenment and conversation. Uh, But again, it's sort of like what we talked about at the top. It's, it's, you, you have two, two different sides that have no meeting place because at least one of them is not even allowing it. Uh, his, his whole comment, I won't bend to anyone's demands. And then immediately after that, uh, set up requirements with even talking to him with, with having, you know, trans activists talk to him and he, he's just not seeing. And they were supposed to meet him when he wanted them to be met. And they had to say that Hannah Gatsby wasn't funny, which was one of the requirements he had for meeting any one of these things would be horrible. All of them together is just kind of insanity to me. Hannah Gatsby is one of the most brilliant comedians mm-hmm. that is working and not understanding that. And just invoking her is just such a bizarre way to do that. He's not taking it serious. When you, when you add something like that at the end, it's just. No, it's just no, crazy. he's, he's, 
he's just working on a level of of hypocrisy that is pretty lousy and you know Ted Sarandos of Netflix is not doing a really good job either he's he's doing terrible how do you think that Sarandos will handle this going forward and and what do you see any uh, you know implications will there be any changes at Netflix or is it just too much money to even it it is a lot of money um but I mean, by Netflix standards, it's not really that much money. <laughs> um, and any kind of controversy always improves numbers. And if you're just a bottom line company, you know, you're, you're going to see that all of this controversy is just going to boost the, the viewing of the special. And, and ultimately, that's, that is the goal anyway. Because I, th- I think as a uh, as a CEO or as anybody, you can sort of make the argument that, hey, it's being seen by a very wide audience of people, which you know creates the conversation itself. There are lots of ways to sidestep and excuse without actually having to do anything and putting it, you know, on the on the audience and on the viewer to make up their mind, which I get, I understand that. But it, it does also allow, you know, a studio or an individual to not really have to do anything or stand for anything. And, but he does have a bunch of incredibly talented and very powerful talent who is very much against this, who are at Netflix. And mm-hmm. what kind of power could they wield in sort of saying that we, we won't accept this? Well, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that would that would instigate some change because Netflix has really, over the last few years, done a stunning job of bringing in huge, huge A-list talent directors and actors uh, for projects. And again, it'll be it'll be about either bottom line or integrity mm-hmm. on all sides, and. And if there are people that have had a relationship with with Netflix or have a future one and want to put their foot down, then they will or they won't. (laughs) Um, Because it doesn't seem like Dave Chappelle is interested in any type of actual conversation about this. And I do say this as somebody who has been a very big fan of his. He He is a tremendously insightful and interesting comedian and his commentary on society is always aces so this this entire if one he did on george floyd right after yeah yeah the, the eight inc- minutes 46 eight seconds minutes, Abs- yeah that was incredible absolutely and his his tv show was amazing and it was biting and it was satire and it was really fantastic but it always punched up and as soon as you as a comedian start really punching down you've you've lost you might have a core audience that supports what you're saying but you've lost the upper hand in being an observational comedian really Mm -hmm. um because that's not how Richard Pryor was it's not how George Carlin was and people like to make these weird free speech comparisons to those two but it's like have you have you yeah (laughs) have you ever even listened to these guys what are you even talking about that's bullshit so i i hope 
that he can maybe find some clarity in the things that he's saying and how and I yeah I just hope that he can yeah yeah why does he keep digging his heels in why is he so actually obsessed with trans people in his comedy now what's what's even going on there why it just seems like you can't let it go and 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 yeah it's it's it it, it's sort of like this is going to be a big leap uh but it's sort of like like trump who you know would only speak directly to his base and 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 feed his base uh the things that they wanted and and there was no room to offer anything else at that point. And I feel like Chappelle is sort of narrowing down his scope to a point where he's not going to have really much to say. Let's hope he gets some clarity and we'll see what I hope so. Eric, as usual, all very interesting and great. And I'll definitely want to talk to you within a month there. I am so curious about where this Golden Globe thing is going. It seems like it's going to be the talk of the season. (laughs) Yes, right after AFI, uh, which ends on the 14th, we've got that deadline for the Golden Globes on the 15th. So yeah, let's, let's meet back up uh, after that and see and see what happens Time for me then. Oh, yes. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.